did you did you get to like be outside in this smoky Canadian wildfire weather? I, we don't usually do the topical thing, but this is kind of crazy. I mean, yeah, I well, I didn't know that it was supposed to be bad, and I didn't notice the smoke um, until naturally yesterday. At one moment, I was wandering in a large cemetery in Brooklyn, and. I got lost and was afraid I was going to get locked in there because they were closing in 15 minutes. Uh, so I looked down at my phone for directions and I looked up two minutes later and that's like the first time I noticed the haze. I don't know if it had just rolled in or what, but I was like, oh, ghosts are afoot. Uh, and then I later learned Straight about the wildfire. Straight to ghosts. <laughs> yeah. I was in a very old cemetery. <laughs> um, but then today, I mean, just it was very RNG. Yeah. I mean, some of the pictures that I saw... I'm almost dystopian. I've been trying to take photos of it and it's just not coming out on my iPhone. I'm like my Sony actual camera. There was and something you were supposed people. There was something you're supposed to do with your setting, I think. To oh. make I, I read something on Twitter like if hey, if you want the best photo of the apocalypse looking sky, you have to change your settings or lighting to something or Couldn't have told me that was asleep so i thought couldn't. maybe it was the true tone display on my phone but it was something in the camera i guess that's a bummer so on our show for the last few weeks uh our meteorologist has been talking about fires in nova scotia and i've been like why are we talking about this like who cares about this and now i understand that she was the doomsday <laughs> bringer who was preparing us all um right. i mean this will be probably ridiculously dated by people listening to it now but i i think i just think it's fascinating because we this kind of stuff doesn't happen in the northeast it happens on the west coast and all of our west coast ccg heads know what we're talking about but so so how was your experience here you said you getting here you said you risked lung so i, I mean i i i did one of those masks the k95 or n95 whatever mm -hmm. blank 95 masks i the, i want to i want to talk about a, a design flaw in this i'm going to take it out we'll okay. add some foliate effects great for the visual medium that is the podcast <laughs> That's the zipper of my backpack opening. So I, I've made some modifications to this mask, and you can all look it up. It's called it's called Google, look it up. If you go to the N95, the way that this one was designed, there's a strap up here at yeah. the top, and then vertically there's another strap at the bottom. Right. I don't understand what the point of the second strap is. Um, to keep it center. Yeah, but like it's too tight when you put them together. Maybe, but if there was only one, then like the tension's only pulling from one spot. So I'm gonna put it on here, give you a, a demo, like I'm. Uh, so where is the second strap? Like I'm Fauci, I I I pulled it off because it was pissing me off. Okay, but the other the other thing is the second strap also does act when you take the first one off. It's hanging around your neck as a second. I don't know if that's the intended purpose. Right, that's dumb. Okay, like, well I don't know if that's the intended purpose. Like I was trying to do the two straps together in the back. And it was so tight on my ears, it was fucking hitting my AirPods out of my ear. Oh my god, I'm so sorry this happened to you. Yeah, it's the worst health thing happening today. This just reminded me that you never replied to my text yesterday about 1990s baseball caps. I I, I don't even remember that. When, well, when was there that? you go. I asked you how much you know about 1990s baseball caps. <laughs> and you thought I was just ghosting you? Um, oh, I see now. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I think um, I, we just moved on from it. <laughs> But I did. I stopped caring. <laughs> so, Might have been two is there days. anything you want to clear the air on that now? I don't. Well, I, don't, I've, I, I discovered a hat you? I've never. There's a type of hat I've never seen before. I was looking at old Mets hats, and I found one made by American Needle, and it's called an Airhead. It's like a pump hat, so it's an adjustable. You'll have a hard time even finding photos online of it. Um, it's instead of 
it's an adjustable hat, but it seems like a fitted hat. But then there's like a pump on the back and you actually adjust it by like pumping air into your hat. Oh, I, I have you ever seen one? Were you, were you looking at one specifically on eBay for $40? Um, no, but there are, the only way you can see them is, oh, I didn't see the Mets one on eBay. I saw one on Etsy. But yeah, if you see the back of it, I'm just confused. I've never seen those before. Here's the, here's the strap, by the way. I found it. Oh, it was under the... Okay. I've been carrying it for 40 minutes for no reason. <laughs> I ripped it off in the Upper East Side and carried it all the way to Astoria like it was my badge of honor. Uh, yeah, I've never seen this before, but it definitely looks 90s. Um, okay. Well, that's it. There's a Yankee one on, on eBay if you want it. I've just done a... I've done an atrocious job of pushing forward the audio medium here to start this podcast. <laughs> We've talked about things that you exclusively need to see. The sky. I feel like you use the word atrocious pretty often. It's a a real specific word to use often. I do like that word. I'm trying to improve my vocabulary. I downloaded an app. Um, I posted on Reddit asking how I can improve my vocabulary. Um, People recommend (laughs) read books. (laughs) What? So I'm not doing that. (laughs) As you say, right next to your shelf of books. Yeah, but most of these are about TV, and they recommend that I read books written in, like, the late 1800s. Um, you got audiobooks for well, that. And then they, somebody suggested I watch a Hugh Laurie TV show that's based on the books, and I was like, okay. And then I watched, like, five minutes of it, and I was like, I can't watch this show. It was yeah. not House MD. I, 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 don't, I don't take you as the big, like, period piece kind of guy. No, I was not. Welcome to the Sidham's Chain Gang podcast. That's Nick. I'm Andrew. Neither of us read very much, but we do watch a lot of movies and TV shows, and we are starting a new chain that has two movies on it. Uh, This is our, I don't know what number chain, I'm not going to pretend like I know, Uh, but I'm going to go ahead and say what the chain is, which is starting today with Car Wash. We started last time ending the chain that had Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs in 1941. We'd gotten to Lorraine Gary, who was a a part of 1941. We're starting this chain with the 70s comedy Car Wash, which stars a lot of prominent black actors of the time, and also Lorraine Gary. Um, And we are using one of the only white people in the cast, Jack Keough, as the transition (laughs) to next week's episode, which is a good one. Uh, We're going to be talking about Midnight Run, the Martin Martin Brest film directed by or uh, starring Robert De Niro and Jack Grodin, Charles Grodin, Charles Grodin, Charles Grodin. Yes, yes. Uh, And De Niro is the end part of the chain. Yeah. Which, if you don't know, um, that name translates to Robert of Nero. Um, (laughs) This is our 22nd chain, by the way. Robert of Nero. Like, uh, there's some kind of Greek-Roman joke there somewhere. (laughs) Uh, This is our 22nd chain, by the way. And I will say, speaking of Lorraine Gary, learned a lot of things about her between the last episode we recorded and now. I learned that Car Wash was the last... No, that's not true. 1941 was the last movie that she appeared in. Um, except for like, um, some, I think later Jaws thing. And also, yeah, 1987 was her last movie. And that would be Jaws, the Jaws, the Revenge. Right. This is not your official, what you've been watching, but can you just talk about, you fell down such a big Lorraine. I did. I I probably probably should have been what I was watching. Uh, yeah, I watched all the Jaws is, 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 um, cause I guess I wanted to torture myself. Um, Jaws 1, great. Jaws 2, bad. Jaws 3, bad. Jaws 4, bad. It's actually called Jaws the Revenge. Um, She's not even in Jaws 3. 
She's not. Nobody is. Uh, <laughs> it's just a bunch of floating Except for Jaws. Except for Jaws. Heads. Well, that's the other thing. I mean, the, <laughs> the point of... Are you familiar with the plots? Like... I know the fourth one. I know the fourth one is based so the, off of the idea that the the shark is trying to exact revenge on. Yeah, but it's also not the, the same family. shark. So yeah. So don't they have to kill all the sharks? Her belief is the sharks. The shark is up for revenge. It's it's trying to kill me. So she flies from Amity to the Bahamas, and the shark follows her there, and. She's like, I have to kill this shark. But if that shark can pick up a piece of, like, uh, the desire for revenge, for vengeance from another shark, then doesn't she need to kill all the sharks? And why doesn't she just move inland at that point? So. Hey, the shark started this beef. I don't know why you're getting at Ellen Brody. It makes no, no, but I'm not, I'm getting, I'm getting at uh, whoever wrote Jaws of the Revenge. (laughs) but yeah, uh, that's Lorraine Gary. She also was married to Sid Sheinberg, who's a producer and the guy who gave Steven Spielberg his start. One more thing on Jaws the Revenge. If you're ever going to mention that movie on a podcast, we have to read the Michael Caine quote, the, the famous Michael Caine quote. Oh, yes. Uh, I've never seen it. Somebody said, have you seen Jaws 4? I said, no, but I've seen the house it bought for my mom. Yeah. So. <laughs> if oh, you're ever wondering if it was for his mom. But yeah. If you're ever wondering if these guys are artistically integral, integral <laughs> or, <laughs> or it's a paycheck. Truly, Matt LeBlanc did say a similar thing about Joey. <laughs> he said, like, it bought me a house. <laughs> yeah. Um, I believe it. Yeah, but, uh, you know, what I've actually been watching is uh, I Think You Should Leave. I have, too. The newest season. <clears throat> the newest season. And, uh, I mean, it, that show, I love it, but it also, I don't love it until later, I feel like. So this is the third season of the Netflix sketch comedy show from Tim Robinson, who was an SNL writer um, mm-hmm. for a while, and I, I have a Cast feeling member a point for like a year. Yeah, I, I have a feeling a lot of his stuff didn't break through, given the yeah <laughs> the, the nature of the sketches on. I think you should leave, right? Which are like absurd to the point where they would alienate an audience sitting there looking to see Taylor Swift and whoever the musical guest is at any point. My point is like these people are going to see SNL skits are not going to like. Things like the driving crooner, or yeah, or the nude egg, or or, or the number of other s- sketches that dominate the cultural like yeah. footprint of the show. Do you have? Um, well, you sent me a list of graded. You graded the sketches, right? Yes. Um, what were? Do you want to read some of those off? What were your top ones? So I think what like, I like about this is also like you could talk about it, and it's not a spoiler because it's impossible to spoil the show. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think anybody that really wants to watch it has probably seen yeah. it already by the time they're listening to this, too. It, because it's such an easy watch. You get through the whole season in two and a half hours. I think they showed the whole thing as an extended movie at one of Netflix's theaters that they own. They, oh, like, really? they, 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 they stitched all of them together, and you could watch it all at once. Um, but just, like, b- broadly, the show is like any sketch show where they're, it's hit and miss. But the rate of hit is way higher than a lot of these shows are. Mm-hmm. Um, Specifically, like a show like I'm thinking of, even something like Key and Peel or uh, Inside Amy Schumer or The Kroll Show or whatever, those like sister shows on Comedy Central that are similar to this kind of structure. Right. I find that a lot of these hit more. And you're right, they hit after the fact. So, my, some of my favorites are The Driving Crooner, which of course was a big one. Uh, I like the one with the live studio audience where he is yeah. using 
the live studio audience boom mic to kind of get his own agenda yeah. across to the to, to the audience uh i like the club aqua one with tim heidecker <laughs> i thought that one was really funny i want to go to haunted house more than i want to go to aqua yes actually. uh the one that the one that really took a step up the second time i saw it was the uh one with the silent era actor yeah. who like will pay you money if you get him to break and yeah. the, the punchline of it is i don't want to spoil it in case you haven't seen it but the punchline of it is the audience of his Just sophisticated watch. show starts to shift quite a bit um <laughs> there's a couple line deliveries Some, in somebody also um equated that which i don't stand by but it was funny equated it to charlie day and fool's paradise oh like, man this is what he's doing I mean, it's the same era, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I like the zipline one. That's the, the popular one. I like the pay it forward chain. Um, <laughs> pay it forward zipline are some of my favorites. Uh, the same ones you said. Uh, and also the work one with the feeding eggs uh, video game. <laughs> yeah, I, that seems to be the most popular one. That's the one I keep seeing all over my feed, at least. Yeah, I'm surprised that it's the most popular one, though, in a way. I guess, it's just right? like it's such like a WTF punchline. Yeah, but it's such a visual funny joke that I think it's like easy to take out of, out of context and still be funny. Um, um, I think I have so there there are guest stars too. That's a, I was gonna and exactly gonna transition to that. Yeah, there were two. I have thoughts on two. One, I was most disappointed is the wrong word, but I was most kind of like let down in which is the synonym for disappointed in Fred Armisen's because um, it just didn't use him the way that like I agree I li- is his strength but also his strength is like in a very improvised setting and even though the show would be improvised it's delivered in in like a scripted sketch format so it wouldn't really live and I think know, that one like hit for a way. lot of people it just didn't hit for me yeah I, I liked it I think also the things that were hitting was not so much about him and more just about like what the it was or something right um but I, he's one of like my favorite people to deliver a line in anything so i was a little disappointed in that but um uh tim robin uh tim meadows uh sketch with the photo booth was uh, that might be my favorite of the season i think it was the best guest star yeah i i did like that one it wasn't one of my top tier favorites but the way oh, I love it. The way it ends is hysterical with the other guy going at him and doing the Fortnite dance. And for that's no so reason. funny. Actually, the only thing I didn't like about it was the end. Oh, I, I <laughs> when that guy starts to go back at him because it's funny. Like the thing about these sketches is that they are impossible to predict because they go to the absurd lengths, the most absurd lengths and random lengths possible. Mm-hmm. So what what he does really well and his writers do really well is you start with one absurd character and then you reveal that there are also other absurd characters. Like he's not just the straight, not everybody's the straight man to him. It right. just, they just live in a world of absurdity. I felt the same way about the, the team building one, like the second sketch where he, they like joke that he is like an enemy of one of the guys in his HR, like uh, seminar. And he keeps like making a big deal out of it. And then somebody from the back row comes in and causes a ruckus. So it's like, I, mm-hmm. I just I just find it funny when he layers the amount of ridiculous characters that are in there. Yeah, so that's uh, speaking to that. Seth Meyers, in talking about the show, obviously he worked with Tim Robinson at SNL, said, if comedy writing 101 is beat A followed by beat B and beat C, mm-hmm. comedy writing, I think you should leave, is beat A, beat J, beat ZZ. Like, it still makes logical sense. They just don't have time to show you all of it. And that's, right. That's what it's so, uh, it's so left field. 
But it's weird. I, I, there are some things I hate that are left field, but I don't know why there's some. I don't know how he does it in a way that I like. Because personally, I don't like Eric Andre show really. You know, I haven't really seen his show. I like his prank stuff, but not really. I haven't seen much of his. I, I mean, I, I just think Tim Robinson is perfectly cast in that kind of role. You know what I mean? And the show, like you're saying, it hits. It has a slow burn quality to it where the first time you laugh at it, maybe. And then as you go back to it more and more and you're you're bracing for the absurdity and you know what the punchline is, you just see how how flawless the execution is of a lot of these things. The, the mm-hmm. timing is on point with a lot of these things and that it completely disrupts the rhythm that you expect, like Seth Meyers was kind of saying. Yeah. Uh, well put. Uh, another guest star I thought did a really nice job and was perfectly cast in his role. I, I really liked the Jason Schwartzman st- uh, sketch. Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I thought that was one of my favorites because that's another one that seems like it goes on too long, but it, it one, goes on to the point where it finds another punchline at the end that's just as funny as the first punchline. And it also, like, almost finds something poignant to say because I think a lot of people <laughs> who have kids feel that way. Um, <laughs> it's just yeah. like, it's like, oh, this is what might happen. Uh, maybe, maybe probably not if I if I had somebody checking me to see if I was talking about my kids too much. Yeah, no, I really like that. Yeah, and it it's it the very beginning of it does seem like it would be an SNL sketch. Like, stop me if I talk about my kids, but it very quickly goes to like one eighty. Yeah, both the speed and the direction. Uh, what about uh you? So, thumbs up for I think you should leave definitely. Uh. This was this has been a big few weeks for television with the return of I think you should leave and then also the finale of two of our two of our favorite shows at, at least my favorite shows I know one is one of your favorites I, the other I think you like at least Succession and Barry yeah um so HBO in their swan song as HBO Max slash the coming the final days of the <laughs> HBO Max era I mean I know there's still HBO on network or whatever but they're Max online now so that's what they want us to go as. Um, God, I hate it. Should we just should we just rebrand as gang? Yeah, <laughs> just gang. Um, so Succession is done after four seasons, and Barry's done after four seasons. They both ended mm-hmm. on the same night, and has to be one of the most monumental, like climactic nights in television history. Like the, a show with the impact of Succession. And the impact of Barry ending on the same night. I know Barry's not on the same level as Succession, but like, no. But it's weird. I felt I don't know. I felt like Barry was just not talked about or marketed or anything this year. I felt like it completely fell into the shadow of Succession, and I'm surprised that they didn't stagger the finales like they have done in the past. Right, Barry they started stagger premieres. Barry did start later, started but it later. has less episodes. Right, so. Why didn't they start Barry at the same time? And Barry has its finale two weeks before yeah. Succession. Maybe has its own moment. Or in theory, why isn't Barry in the summer? Like, yeah. give it a little bit more spacing and stuff. But HBO's schedule is very rigorous. They love having big events leading into it. They just they they're banking a lot on this Sam Levinson Idol show with the weekend and Lily Rose Depp. So they they probably don't want anybody going up against that. Yeah, which I guess so. I mean, we're not gonna talk about that show because I don't. I fucking hate Sam Levinson. But anyway, uh, I I think Succession firmly cemented itself as, and we're not going to do like extreme breakdowns. Uh, there are plenty of other podcasts going to do extreme breakdowns of both of these shows. They're very detailed. They're very thorough and complex and right. brilliantly st- structured. I think Succession cemented itself as a top five show of all time for me. I thought 
this season specifically, and I've loved the past three seasons as well, uh, I think this season specifically was tremendous. I, I, I think if you're if you're going to end a narrative in a way that is satisfying and you're trying to find a way to do it that lives up to the legacy of the previous three seasons while also taking chances, mm-hmm. I, I felt everybody was on their top game this season in terms of writing, in terms of technical prowess. Some of the inside the episode featurettes gave us a lot of great insight to these huge sequences that they were filming in real time and that it's a lot of burden on the writing and on the actors. And I thought everybody this season was at the top of their game in a way that some of them haven't gotten a chance to do before. Like, Karen Culkin has always been great in the show, but he's never gotten a chance to, like, sure. freaking kill it like Jeremy yeah. Strong gets to do all the time. And yeah. his, this season, he got to do that a lot. And Sarah Snook got a lot of great moments like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought Alexander Skarsgård, who I feel like gets kind of lost in the shuffle a little bit, was a great foil for them as uh, Madsen. Uh, who is, of course, their adversary trying to wrangle back the company. And I thought the finale was fantastic. I thought it sidestepped a lot of the uh, pitfalls that a lot of sitcoms slash dramas fall into in their final episode where they try to go huge and get out of their, you know, out of the comfort zone that made them successful in the first place. It felt like another succession episode that just happened to have higher stakes because of the things that were happening in it. Yeah. And I, th- I think that was really important mm-hmm. um, to do. I know some people found it a little low key, but you know, I, I felt like it was true to itself, which is, yeah, I think it makes the most sense to do it that way. And it is, it, the show doesn't do what it could have done of going into the future or of, you know, taking any like broader steps back and, and, you know, adding some context from their past or something like that. It just wrapped up the story of, like, who's getting the company and when, spoiler forthcoming, when when they don't get it, you're, that's it. It's the, That's the story. It's out. It's over. Jesse Armstrong had a great quote in one of those inside the episodes right after the finale where he was like, their stories are far from over, but this is where the show kind of loses interest in them because yeah, yeah, yeah. they have failed the, 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 the objective of the entire series. You know yeah. what I mean? Um, like they have, they all have a lot of life left to live. It's just, a, it takes, again, it takes a lot of restraint to know that now is the time that we don't have to, there's no narrative ground left for the audience to follow them in. Even if we do like these characters, even though we shouldn't, um, and want to spend more time with them. It, it, it takes a lot of restraint to stop now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I mean, like I, I, we could do a whole hour on succession, but I think. Let's talk about Barry now. Mm-hmm. I'll let you go first on so, Barry since I... I lost emotional investment in Barry um, like a season and a half ago or more. Uh, so I've just been kind of... It's a little bit of just spinning the wheels watching it. But uh, I mean, I respect it and th- it, think it's a great show. I, I kind of just fell off interest, like real meaningful interest in it. Um, so I liked it, you know. Um, I I guess I like the idea... You know, the show went from comedy to a show that's not a not much less a comedy. Um, we've talked about this where you f- I know you find it funnier than I do in its most recent form, even. Um, and I kind of I don't know. I like that. But also um, I, I it kind of stopped being what I wanted it to be at, at some point uh, as a show tonally. Uh, but I thought the finale was good. I, you know, 
the jump forward in the last season, I, I'm not a huge fan of jumps forward and stuff, but um, I feel I feel pretty much the exact opposite of you in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. I think, I mean, I really liked the show in seasons one and two, but it felt more like traditional sitcom with occasional dramatic elements, mm-hmm. whereas it became something sinister and really risky and ambitious in the final two seasons that I really respected, especially Bill Hader kind of like signaling to us that as his character takes a turn, he's going to take a turn as a showrunner and as a creative mind. Um, Mm -hmm. And I I just, I found all of the tonal shifts fascinating to me that they let him take such a, HBO is usually really good with letting creatives do whatever they need to do. Yeah. They, they, they let him take such a, a swerve towards something that's like Lynchian or I'm like, I'm trying to think of like a, Scorsese's not a good person. Christopher Nolan-esque, uh, where it feels like dramatic and really dour at points. Um, yeah, I, I, just, I, I was less... I really liked the balance between the, the darkness and the comedy or the, the murder and the comedy. <laughs> and I felt like that balance, whereas maybe it started comedy-heavy, it... I thought the comedy was too much abandoned by the end of it. Yeah, I, I also it. taking a step back, like was like, okay, this is what the show's doing is, is it, the, the purpose of it is to make it now less of a comedy and kind of shift genre of the show. And at first I was like, eh, you know, like breaking bad kind of did that in a way. Like nobody needs another show. doesn't need to do that. I guess it, they do do it more than breaking bad did. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know. Overall, I just, there's I respect and and like the choice and and agree it's difficult, very difficult to do that to pull off that magic trick. But I was just a little left like oh this isn't the show I signed up for. Interesting. See I I yeah I do not. I found a lot of my favorite comedic moments in the history of the show came in the last two seasons, whether like it be the the whole barista running joke in that one episode the way that they use violence in visual humor, like the whole missile thing in the second to last episode, the opening of the heads in the boxes, sequences mm. like that. I mean, the entirety of the Daniel Day-Lewis, Mark Wahlberg setup, uh, I thought was hilarious. Um, yeah. yeah, I don't know. It, it feels... It, it's much more coded to the violence of the show. Um, the Dave and Buster, think... the Dave and Buster's bit early in the season, I thought was hilarious. I think maybe a thing... The Guillermo del Toro cameo, like I think I, I think I have trouble appreciating comedic moments like that when they're so few and far between, because it almost feels like it becomes easier to 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 do. You can have a moment in the show that if it doesn't land, not that this that's the case with these ones, but it becomes a show where if you can have a moment where if something doesn't land dramatically, you can be like, oh, it was for the humor. On a, on a figurative level, it's the same thing as when people are saying, like, um, oh, John Stewart makes great points politically, but he leans too much on, like, well, I'm a comedian. If I'm, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a comedian, it doesn't matter, which I don't agree with. But it's that thing of, like, the, I don't know, I, I, I think it creates, like, a, a safety net for the show in some way. To be able to say, like, oh, no, yeah, there's, like, a couple jokes every episode. I, I disagree, episodes. though. I, you're making it sound like that they don't joke at all, I feel like. I, I think that what they did was they integrated the integrated different styles of jokes into the darkness. Like the idea, like 
there's a scene in the first episode of this new season where Sally is having like an emotional breakdown. And of course, that's a very dark, very sad thing for a character who's going through some tragic stuff, but it's happening in the middle of like a drive through line. You know what I mean? Like they found a way to assimilate it all where, okay, this isn't the comedy scene. This isn't the drama scene. This scene has both in it. That Yeah, but that doesn't feel like a joke to me. It feels like a, 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 a more like natural and poignantly designed like situation. Like I think I, there... You think that sounds that sounds natural? I don't know if I, I don't know if I agree with that. No, not natural, but I think it, it it's 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 a common thing that a show would do or or a scene would do is put somebody in a in a moment like that in in a in a like a juxtaposition. That's all it is. Uh, okay. I I I think it is a really serious moment in an absurd situation. I mean, it is a juxtaposition. Yeah, but I think that's juxtap- so many things. Isn't I, that like a really basic idea at this point? I don't know. Serious I, moments in absurd situations? I, but you're saying the show wasn't doing any of that. No, right. I'm just saying that's not... I don't think that counts as the humor that I'm talking about. I, I don't... Okay. I, I think that's drawing board... I think that's drawing board writing is, is putting serious moment in an absurd situation. Okay, we're going to agree to disagree on this. Um, I think that the finale of the show did take some, did take the risks that, like with the time jump and everything like that. I don't know if it all paid off, but I found that the last scene really paid off for me. So it kind of all came together. I didn't think it was, I didn't think it stuck the landing like Succession quite did, but I, I found that it was. So, yeah, as far as finale, are you satisfied with like lesson learned stuff or, or not, you know, with comeuppance and stuff like that do you feel yes okay yeah um because i think certain characters it, it kind of had its, it it kind of has both uh tinges to it where it's like certain characters are punished for their greed and selfishness and then other characters are like rewarded in a way that makes a commentary of how screwed up everything is mm-hmm. like for example like barry's fate and his ultimate legacy is not in line with what he deserves, but Kusino's is in line kind of with what he deserves. How so? Because Kusino was selfish and put his own vanity in front of himself, and he kind of... All 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 Kusino had to do was sit out the situation, and he couldn't help himself because he wanted to profit off of this terrible situation. Um, and okay. he was rewarded for it, whereas Barry goes around doing all of these terrible things... And, okay, spoilers for the finale. His legacy has been memorialized in this film that completely reframes everything that he did because Hollywood loves a story like Barry's even if they have to change the facts of the situation. Right. So so it kind of, not everybody was punished. You know what I mean? No. um, You know, you're you're making me look at Kusuno's character a little differently. I hadn't given it that much thought. But, um, you know, it makes sense. Like, that does make me kind of like his ending. But I'd also felt it also felt much harsher of an ending than the character deserved, and I didn't expect the, the show to go that way. Mm. I, I disagree with that too. I I think I think everybody on the show sucks. They just suck in different ways. Um. So. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It just felt like a lot. It just felt like an uneven balance between Kusino's ending and like the trauma that he endured or something. Okay. But that's why the writers are on strike now. <laughs> yeah, that's why. Yeah. I also think that that also plays a role in why all these shows are ending now. Like, 
I think a lot of them saw the writer's strike coming and were like, let's find a way to wrap this all up. Interesting. That makes sense. Before all this comes to a head. Yeah. Because now, like, you have shows like Stranger Things, which is ending with season five, but, like, they're... They have half a script. You know what I mean? They're not. Yes, and the characters so, have aged more than the cast of Boing's exactly, World. <laughs> exactly. They're stuck now, basically. <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of wrapping things up, should we move on? So that's Succession and Barry, two great shows that have ended. Um, if you have not watched them, you should watch them. But I'm sure you have at least one person in your life that doesn't shut up about them. So you probably know all about it. And story. it's us. Yeah, probably. <laughs> Let's get into our feature review of Car Wash. Yes! It's a 1976 American comedy film. Uh, it was directed by Michael Schultz back in the day, written by, rest in peace, Joel Schumacher, who is a influential, influential filmmaker for a number of positive and negative reasons. He's directed movies like The Lost Boys, St. Elmo's Fire, The Phantom of the Opera in 2004. Um, he directed a few episodes of House of Cards. And of course, he's best known um, for... Batman Forever and Batman and Robin, which are two of the most infamous, uh, at least Batman movies, if not superhero movies right. of all time. Um, and it also... Uh, also, Phone Booth, another good movie. Yes, I liked Phone Booth a lot. It was also... Car Wash was also produced by Art Linson, who, Small World, would later be portrayed by chain ender Robert De Niro in the movie What Just Happened, where he, or Robert De Niro, plays a movie producer, and he plays Art Linson based on a memoir that he wrote. You know what's so funny? My my mother, today, I'm not even kidding, my mother today asked me about what just happened. Really? Just, like, out of nowhere. She was, like, watching, uh, looking, scrolling through Netflix and was like, is this good? And I was like, I've never seen it. I was like, I know I've, I've heard mixed things. Yeah. But it's okay. Um, I've not thought about that movie in at least five years, so I'm glad it came up twice in one day. <laughs> um... There's no real structure to speak of to Car Wash. It is very much a hangout movie. Uh, it takes place at a Los Angeles car wash called the Deluxe Car Wash, uh, which is basically operated by a colorful cast of characters, a predominantly black cast. Um, among the names that you might recognize today, Bill Duke is in this film. Uh, he plays Abdullah, who is kind of this radical Muslim uh, among the crew. Uh Richard Pryor drops in. He's not a member of the crew, but he drops in for a scene as Daddy Rich, who's like this evangelist kind of like pimp, Mm -hmm. I guess is the best way to put it. George Carlin is in the film as a taxi driver uh, who is looking for a prostitute that ran out on her uh, meter. Um, There are a lot of names in this. There's Franklin Ajay, Sully Boyer, Carmen Caridi, Erwin Corey, Ivan Dixon. A lot of people that people probably have seen in other things, those are the names that I think people know separately. Lorraine Gary is in it as well. She has a very small role in this film, um, but a, yeah. but a, but an amusing one. Um, what do you know Sully Boyer from? I always know him as Dog Day Afternoon guy. Yeah, that's 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 pretty <laughs> yeah. much that's pretty much what I I know him as too. I would say I've also seen him in nothing else so <laughs> I'm, sc- I'm scrolling through to see if there's anything else i've seen him in um this movie clearly is a huge source of inspiration for films like barbershop and friday and these think like a man and eh, that's probably i'll take that one off the board uh, let's go barbershop and friday these movies that are structured very simply have predominantly black casts 
and are just about the colorfulness of the characters and the liveliness of the of the scenario. Um, there there are threads throughout Car Wash, but there is not a plot. It is basically a day in the life of these people and the crazy things that happen when we hang out with them. Yeah, so I I talked about this a little bit when we were talking about 1941, but it's not as it's not as as true about 1941. Um, was it, the the feeling that that movie at the time was evoking for me is really what I was what Car Wash does, which. Um, is apparently called episodic plot, which I did not know. Like I know episodic as a TV term, but um, within film, it's like all it's separate plots all tied together by the same setting or the same theme or, or one yeah. person, something Love, like that. Love Actually is a great example of that as well for the white people version of that. <laughs> I've actually never seen Love, Love Actually. I think you would like it. Can you one sentence it for me? Or, it or? is a Christmas movie that has a bunch of separate stories. That talk they about don't the, the spirit of Christmas and love, basically. Okay, they don't merge the stories? Some of them intersect. Like, okay. certain characters intersect across certain ones, but they each have their own thing going on. Okay. Like, it, I, another example is, like, the terrible New Year's Eve, Valentine's Day movies by the Gary Marshall made. Right, yeah. They, see, there's something, though, about when it's a shared setting, uh, not to jump ahead to how I felt about it already, but I, I just never, they never work for me. Interesting. Episodic ones tied around a setting. But also the ones I tend to have seen are like bad ones. Like I've come across, and I think they were, it was a common thing at that time. Like I saw movies like um, National Lampoon had like one called Class Reunion, which was like John Hughes' first movie. Basically the same thing, but at a class reunion. And then like um, Empire Records is kind of like that. You know Empire Records? I've never seen it, but I, I know um, of it. Empire Records is kind of like that. So is this horrible old movie I saw called Record City. It's all the same. It, it just feels like a lot. I don't know. I think it, it, it just can go so far. Yeah. Well, we'll get into this. You have, to be into the, the you have to be into each individual story for that structure to work, mm -hmm. like, fully. Um, I found this amusing. I enjoyed it. Uh, I don't think... I, I I am not the target demographic. I don't think I, like, got the full impact of this that I'm sure it had back in the day. Uh, it, this was a well, very well-reviewed comedy back in the day. Um, and it probably was revolutionary both in structure, sort of, um, and also probably the showcase of certain members of the cast. Like, there's there's a predominant gay character in this uh, movie that's a cross-dresser. Mm -hmm. and he she is considered like one of the gang like i for 1976 i'm sure that was very ahead of its time um but it kind of just blends into also just how progressive this was probably in terms of just the entire cast being black as well i'm mm -hmm. sure that wasn't a big thing back in the mid 1970s as well um there are some interesting things said here about class religion minorities um but mostly it's just supposed to be like a kind of a fun vibe movie it, it really coasts on the charisma and chemistry of the cast. Mm -hmm. uh, and I felt that's where it was the strongest. Um, I didn't really find any kind of poignancy in any threads. I didn't find any of the actual storylines hilarious. Like, there were some moments that right. I definitely found funny. I thought the Richard Pryor scene was easily the best scene in the film because he kind of comes in, dominates the movie for 10 minutes, and then leaves. Um, but overall, like, I enjoyed it. I think I, think I understand why people love it. Um, even if I personally did not love it myself. Yeah, it, you know, it, it makes sense that m movies like that seem more to have been more common for that time. Um, because, and I think this speaks to like what, maybe what the value of the movie was 
um, in a lot of ways is it's just provide and you talked about all the people who are in it too is like a big cast it just prov- it's it's a setting that provides a bunch of recognizable and beloved uh comedians and actors to kind of play together and like do sketches which one at the time i mean we we're barely in an snl world at the time um obviously sketch yeah. shows were a thing but they were not common and now also with um just like the proliferation of media and and social media and digital media and stuff like that, you can do, uh, you can have, you know, all these faces that you want to see in sketches. Uh, and it's not, it's, it's, it's much more common. It's not a special. But at the time, tying them all to get, tying various comedic exploits together in a film was one of the only ways to get that out there for a mass audience, right? Is It had to be, like, tied together in a vehicle. It's not supposed to have a, you know, people aren't going to it for the plot. They're just like, it's almost like, oh, this is an excuse for the comedians to get a studio to put their stuff out for us, right? Yeah. Uh, and that's, yeah, it's at, at the time, it, 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 it was much more rare to see an appearance, uh, I, I assume, by Richard Pryor or something like that than it is to see a modern day comedian's appearances between the nine stops on the talk shows and, and, and um, digital media and social media and everything like that, you know? Yeah. I wonder what the, what it was like just in general for film comedy back then. Like, can you really think of like a lot of the eighties is really when these kind of comedies took off too, you know, uh, these kinds meaning what? I don't know. Just like, like rowdy, semi raunchy, semi-irreverent comedies mm-hmm. <clears throat> i mean we had like monty python at that time but that was coming literally from across the pond like yeah. american comedies like this we I, we had the start of national lampoon we had animal house yeah that is interesting when did that really happen where we go from like i mean maybe this is not fair maybe i'm just talking about two totally different worlds of comedy too but where we go from like more neil simony things over to like right well yeah that's yeah exactly what i'm o- saying over to I think it starts with Mel Brooks. It starts with Mel Brooks mm-hmm. with the producers in the late 60s. And then you have Blazing Saddles. You have Young Frankenstein. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, and then you have National Lampoon. Then you have the SNL crew making their own movies. And then from there, we're off and running. Right. So, um, this feels like it is a part of that wave, but it is a representation aspect where, you know, this gives the black comedians and the black actors a, a chance to shine, whereas that probably wasn't as prevalent in a Mel... I mean, although... I, right. I say it's not as prevalent in like a Mel Brooks or a Monty Python, but Mel Brooks has one of the most iconic black comedic characters of all time in Blazing Saddles. So right. that's not fair to him. I'm sorry, Mel. <laughs> he forgives you, I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure he agrees. 96 years old, Mel Brooks. What's, and, the, what's the age that you would come up to me and be like, just kill me? Oh, uh, it depends how I'm doing. It depends how decrepit I am. I mean... If I'm having trouble getting around in my mid 40s, I'm going to be like, dude, <laughs> I'll just leave you out in the smoke for 24 yeah. hours. See what happens. Um, but yeah, I think I largely I did not enjoy car wash. I knew I figured I wouldn't enjoy it because I feel like I say this about a lot of stuff. <laughs> you can decide. <laughs> I feel like I say this about a lot of stuff, but I definitely have a blind spot or a lack of appreciation. There, I have an inability to appreciate 70s comedy films like that or, or something uh even into like the 80s a little bit it's weird i really enjoy 
earlier comedies and I enjoy 90s comedies too, but there's something around that point, movies that were outrageous at the time that like I've never fully been able to to appreciate and wrap my head around. Um, but I also know really particularly with this movie that uh, content, you know, at the time I think I would have in, in, enjoyed it more, I think. I, I don't know, I just really tried to wrap my head around the context of when the movie came out to like try to appreciate it and understand it more because as it stands I didn't get any enjoyment out of it <laughs> and like my subjective rating is like pretty low yeah I was I was kind of in the same boat as you though I would say I would say I probably liked it a little bit more than you because I found moments actually amusing as opposed to just appreciating the context of it mm-hmm. like there were things I actually found somewhat funny um but I, I it's kind of the same viewing experience for me where it's like I'm 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 recognizing how influential this was, even if I'm not connecting with it at the same time. Like, like it must have right. been to get back to the Lorraine Gary point, which is the whole reason we're watching this. Um, she plays this hysterical white woman who's just like a caricature of a hysterical white woman who's being like really rude. And her kid is about to puke and she's being really rude to the to the staff who are trying to clean her car. And then she gets back in the car and the kid pukes anyway. Um and I'm sure that was like a cathartic moment for black audiences to see this white woman who is the butt of the joke as opposed to the other way around, right. which it probably was what it was like for years and years, I'm assuming. Um, but I mean, I don't get a lot out of that, you know, like mm-hmm. at, here in the 2010s, 2020s, where some of our most influential act, uh, comedic actors of all time are, yeah. are black stars like Eddie Murphy and um, Chris Rock and people like that. So. My, my, my point is my point is similar to yours where it's like I I can't transport myself back to 1976 and know exactly like how huge of a moment this was but I can watch it and be amused at the chemistry of the cast and some of the jokes mm-hmm. that's pretty much how I feel about it I, I definitely am I'm definitely positive on it but I'm, I'm mixed positive you know because I was I was kind of trying to run out the clock and get this to the end sure a little bit I was just kind of like all right I none of this is like bowling me over. You know, like there's not a single bit where I was like, that's the funniest thing I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. I I think the movie's biggest legacy for everybody is the theme song. Was that made for the movie? Yes. Oh, okay. I was not aware of that. It was recorded by Rose Royce. Uh, there were actually three separate songs on the soundtrack that were like huge top 10 singles on the Billboard R&B charts. Mm-hmm. It's car wash. I want to get to you, and I'm going down. I couldn't tell you what the other two were. Uh, the soundtrack won a Grammy for best score soundtrack album, and car wash was one of the biggest hits of the era. And for people of our age, it was resurrected in a similar setting in a cover by Christina Aguilera and Missy Elliott for 2004's Shark Tale, <laughs> where Oscar the fish works at a whale wash, not a car wash. Um, but that was the first time I ever heard the song. And that's why I, I've always recognized it as. I wonder, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I have no info to, to back this up, but I'm going to say that the Car Wash song has has um, generated more revenue now than Car Wash the film. I think that's probably accurate. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Which is it's been more acclaimed. It literally yeah. won them a Grammy. So um, the it's interesting that the movie to me is written by Joel Schumacher. Um we're talking about the inclusiveness of the cast and of the characters. Joel Schumacher is one of the... He, he was an openly gay man when he was alive. Um, and I think you can tell based on the the writing of the characters because nobody 
nobody that is homosexual in the film or like Native American or any other minority uh, is a butt of any joke. You know, that's not that's not the nature of the jokes. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's like they're just characters who happen to be X, Y and Z laughing at more like the same ridiculousness that any characters would laugh at. I think that's interesting. There's an openly yeah. gay screenwriter in the 1970s who got a major m- movie made. Mm-hmm. Was this his, uh, how early on in his career was this? This was his second script. He wrote a movie in 1976 called Sparkle, which I know has been remade uh, starring Jordan Sparks. Uh, it was basically a musical drama kind of about a, a group of sisters in Harlem who become like basically the dream girls. See, I would think up until this, the early, I think St. Elmo's Fire was the earliest work of his I'd seen up until this. He also wrote The Wiz, which is influential in a different way. And the, nobody uh, beats the, the Wiz. Yeah. Um, this is an aside, but I there there is a Wiz hat on eBay, like the store, not the movie. Uh, should I buy it and wear it? What do you mean the store, not the movie? Like it's a hat with the Wiz logo on it. Oh. No. <laughs> okay, that's fair. That's what I thought too, but I just needed somebody else to tell me. If you're um, gonna if you're gonna pick between that and the Mets hat, you gotta do the Mets hat. You would actually get used out of that. Um sometimes you just gotta hear it, I guess. Yeah, no, that's what it is. <laughs> um apparently this was kind of conceived as a play, and then they were like, let's make a movie. Um, which makes a lot of sense. Interesting. You could totally see You can't have all that water on stage. Yeah. It'd make a mess. Yeah. The car, the actual car washing would be pretty weak yeah. in, a, in, a, in a theatrical version. But just like the structure, like no, you were talking sense. about, talking about one setting yeah. and characters kind of interacting off to the sides and stuff like that. And I think I, if, if there is like an emotional through line, there's this relationship between Abdullah and uh, Lonnie, who is the older man who, you know, Abdullah is kind of the hat the hothead and he comes back and tries to shoot people. Uh, but doesn't end, doesn't end up doing it because Lonnie talks him down. Mm-hmm. But Lonnie also has these big ideas for the car wash, and the the white owner is kind of like pushing him off to the side a little bit. Right. Um, if there is a plot, that's probably the closest thing to it. Um, but I kind of I was checked out to all that basically. <laughs> he like I, I think Bill Duke is really good in the movie, but I just don't think any of that was particularly all that interesting. Yeah. The movie's yeah. most interesting when it's straight comedic. Sure. Yeah, I would gather that's how most audiences feel. Even at the time when they were watching it. Yeah. Uh, Jack Keogh, who was the transition to Midnight Run, uh, he plays Scruggs. He's kind of like a, a cowboy Texan uh, 10-gallon hat wearing member of the crew. Um, I don't really remember anything meaningful that he did. I, I Was he the one that like had the night out with one of the, one of the other car wash employees and he was talking about he's afraid he got the clap and he's gonna have to go home to his wife and stuff like mm-hmm. that yeah that I was him so. i think okay you were saying before when you were saying it was conceived as like for the stage it was conceived as like a musical right the project the producers attend originally intended for the project to be a stage production which would feature a replicate car wash on stage hoping the project if successful could be adapted into a movie uh they did they were persuaded to just make the movie instead doesn't say anything about specifically a musical um okay i saw somewhere else that it was conceived as a musical could have been and which makes sense and also kind of explains the the looser plot uh you know which they wouldn't have i don't know it, it certainly today it would be more fitting in something like a musical since we're making less of these episodic plot based on setting films uh the biggest star in the entire movie 
possibly. Uh, may not have been in the version that you and I watched. Uh, Wikipedia says that Danny DeVito was in this film. I don't, I don't recall seeing him. Uh, they say he was cut out of the theatrical cut, but added back in. The version I watched was on Tubi with just free ads. Um, that I, is what I watched as well. I don't remember seeing him. But like I said, I wasn't like, I was, I was watching, but I wasn't like locked in and rewinding scenes. So he might've passed by and I might've missed it. Yeah. So I don't know if this is the scene that was replaced or not, but at, but at one point, um, you can, well, I can't turn my computer around. You can see a remnant of him. You can see him in the background. Actually, I can't. It's like, it's like Bigfoot, but with Danny. He's that guy in the background. Yeah. yeah. That's definitely Danny DeVito's back. Yeah. Um, this was, this movie came out three years or no, one year after One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which was his first big role. So there was no obligation to get him into the movie at the time. But you, if if they knew if they knew that Danny DeVito was going to be as big a star as he was, then you're damn right he would have been in the yeah, theatrical Yeah, I mean, he was cut. still a couple years away from Taxi at that point. Right, which was the thing that really made him. I mean, he's great in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, but he's not like the, the star of that. We should, can we do it? Can we make this a Taxi Rewatch podcast? It's so good. Uh, no. Okay, that's fine. The show does hold up. I will watch it. Maybe I will watch it at some point and then we should can talk I, about it's it. It's one of the two. We either make this a Taxi Rewatch podcast or I get the whiz hat. <laughs> Those are the only options? <laughs> the only options. There's no option C? It's the only options for me. Um, <clears throat> anything but, else on this? Um, nothing to, to report right now, but this is leading me down a little bit of a rabbit hole where there's another film that Art Linson produced and he wrote the story for um, called American Hot Wax. Uh, I think it was like the, one of the first ones he produced. And I do plan on watching it. Um, it's about like 50s rock and roll and uh, Jay Leno is in it, uh, which I'm sure won't go over well with me. Uh, but the reason I bring it up is because it's directed by CCG alum Floyd Mutrux, who was the director for what film, Andrew, that we watched? Oh, no. Yeah. That sounds like that sounds like Born to Ride, but I'm not sure. Ooh, that's a good guess. It certainly is. There goes my baby. Okay. There yeah. goes my baby. That, that was probably the closest to Born to Ride out of our entire uh, filmography that we reviewed. So Yeah. And he also... Now I'm just going to talk to you about Floyd Mutrex for a minute. He also is an uncredited writer on Tulane Blacktop. Never knew that. Boy, if you blink for a second when talking to you, it's... It, it's <laughs> I, 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 I thought we were on... Have art, you seen I, Blue, Tulane Blacktop? Because I want to watch that. I, I have not. No. Okay. We it's were, a movie we, James Taylor stars in. You create your own little chains throughout your conversations <laughs> with people. My, to, I you, love a Wikipedia rabbit hole. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, was, I, was, I was still stuck on Art Linson's filmography. Did you ever see... This seems like a you movie, the comedian. Uh, no, I actually, I almost watched it the, uh, recently. I mean, I've heard it's bad, but it just seems like a movie that you would have seen. Ed De Niro, yeah, De Niro playing. No, I almost watched it because they shot it at a comedy club on Long Island, and I really wanted to see it. Mm. Um, yeah, big cast. Charles Grodin's in that. That's well, yeah. We'll talk about that next week. Yeah, Charles Grodin. I think we're done with car wash, right? Um. Yeah, I think, you know, as far as my experience, I would call this movie uh, a wash. Yeah, I knew you were going to say that. I I, I, was, I thought you were going to come up with something else and zig for me, but unfortunately you zagged. I guess no, I'm no Tim Robinson. Um, this is going to get swallowed up into the like the middle of our rankings of movies, I think. I Yeah, sure, I guess. I, I, don't, see, I don't see a scenario where I really talk about this again. I guess we'll see. 
Maybe next week. I don't week. think it's winning a Cheney next year. No, I don't gangy, think so. Whatever what it's called. Gangy, yeah. Uh, that <laughs> will do Cheney. it for this week's episode of the Cinema Chain Gang podcast. Uh, we reviewed Car Wash right there with Lorraine Gary. We're going to say goodbye to Lorraine. We're going to take Jack Keogh with us, who plays a much more prominent role in the movie that we're going to be talking about next week, which is Midnight Run, the Robert De Niro 1980s comedy. It's safe to say we're going to have a lot more to say about that one. For Nick Ricardo, I'm Andrew Jay. The chain continues. Rip Papuli, Rip Ray, and Rip Tony.